0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the season finale of In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm Michael Fling, one of your hosts here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined by, you would think after a season, I would have something prepared, the cotton blossom of my heart, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed Musicals, resident dramaturg and artistic associate. Hi, Annika.
1: Hi, Michael.
0: Anika, why don't you remind us of the clue of what this musical was that we gave on last episode, and uh, tell us what musical we'll be diving into on this episode.
1: Certainly, so the clue that we gave was that uh, this show featured no curtain call because the creator, who was also the director, although there wasn't really an official director, um, had decided that because it was dealing with such serious topics, they felt that the audience should be able to kind of sit there with their thoughts and their feelings about it. So that happened at the opening night of Showboat, the Er proto big deal musical of 1927 written by Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein II. Incidentally, I'm not entirely sure they did that for any other than one night <laughs> because I can't quite tell. Apparently the audience was completely confused by there being no curtain call and uh, Ziegfeld, who produced it, and other people felt that they surely had a big flop on their hand because everyone just kind of filed out in silence. But um, yeah, that that was the intention, and uh, they probably put it back. Uh, curtain calls are are good.
0: Yes, yes, in general, we are uh, we are in favor of curtain calls. so before we get any further, though, it's time for the speed test. Hudson's slow doesn't matter.
2: flow doesn't matter. matter Hudson's doesn't matter. matter. Hudson's doesn't matter
0: where I do my best to summarize the plot of Showboat in under one minute. Um, And since Showboat does have a plot that spans, what, like 40 years, 30 years, 40 years, something like that, we'll uh, see how well I can do with that.
1: All right. I've got a minute on the clock. I have no cutesy list, so I'll just give you a minute. Ready? Three, two, one, plot.
0: All right. It's the late 1880s. Uh, we are in Mississippi uh, to start. Uh, actually, no, I don't think we're in Mississippi to start. Um, we're just on the Mississippi River. Um, so that's so anyway. There uh, with the showboat, um, Captain Andy's <clears throat> showboat with his. Uh, crazy ragtag group of performers and they're always selling the show floating on an old-fashioned showboat up and down the Mississippi River where they stop in towns and get performances um, and I've probably already wasted half my time explaining what a showboat is so um <clears throat> so basically um, that one of the the two stars of the show are one of them is secretly um, mixed-race and is married to a white person which is illegal at the time and so they're kicked off the showboat captain Andy's daughter kind of takes over the showboat and becomes a big performer with this kind of random Character that stops by the showboat and they fall in love, and uh, we literally then go through the next like 35 years of this family's life, and a lot of tragedy happens.
1: Yeah, there we go. Um, I yeah. First
0: of the the guy she meets is Ravenel, um, and he is uh, kind of he's just a shady character at first. He then becomes kind of a successful gambler, um, but then loses all their money gambling and then leaves. Uh, Magnolia, who is the daughter, and Kim, who is their newborn daughter. Um, He kind of abandons them, and she ends up making her life as a performer. Uh, I didn't mention the secondary comic characters. Um, Ellie and Frank, who are the kind of comedians on the showboat, and uh, I didn't actually name uh, Julie, who is the performer who is uh, mixed race, and her uh, fellow co-star husband, Steve so anyway that's kind of the the general gist of showboat
1: yeah that is the general gist of showboat for sure
0: okay so with that uh it's time for why god why
1: why
3: god why today
0: where we talk about the big idea that connects all the characters and the reasons why the authors are telling this story so Showboat obviously has a unique place in musical theater history for its, uh, its elevation of the narrative and its elevation of plot and theme and story development and character development. Um, and it's, I mean, it's based off the epic Edna Ferber novel and certain spans 40 years. And there's a lot of things to discuss in terms of themes, motifs, uh, different things. But I think the overarching idea that really connects everyone is This idea of show business and performing as a family and a community and how it can bring a community together, Um, which brings in the uh, very important uh, racial aspect to the show of the, uh, the black characters that are that are continually oppressed throughout the piece and, uh, make, and reflect on that in a song like Old Man River. Um, but it also ties together all of the various characters that continue to have their lives, uh, intermingle and mix because of show business. Um, so as much as it is, uh, certainly, a, a microcosm of a certain period in American history, and then looking at a very, um, a personal, a very personal actual family of Captain Andy and, his daughter Magnolia, and then all the other, you know, Ravenel and all that. It is also looking at this larger family and community of show people that um, are continually drawn together and kept together and uh, interwoven because of show business. But there are are so many things that we could put in this section um, that are, you know, varying levels of analytical. So, Annika, like, what do you think is the organizing governing purpose of Showboat?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's a very, very rich and deep text. Um, I mean, maybe not a deep text, but there's a certainly a lot in it. Um, I would say it's tricky because my rule as a dramaturg is to look for the protagonist and figure out what the journey is, and in there is the lesson. And I think that this show um, is, in some ways, definitely the first of its kind in terms of this musical theater form, bringing depth to these characters and realism. Um, but at the same time, it still has one foot in the sort of operetta past. And I do think that this is somewhere where you see a little bit of that operetta past, because I would say that Magnolia is probably our protagonist. She certainly undergoes an immense journey over the course of the show, but at the end of the show, Gaylord Ravenall comes back and she, they're a family again. And so that's not really... I don't know what the journey I would say in that moment is that feels like kind of a very old fashioned story about like the woman who is left by her no good husband, but then he comes back, you know, nowadays, I think we'd see that story be a little bit different, she would probably not see him again, as happens in the novel, and it would be a, about a woman who is kind of coming into her own as a, as an independent entity and in finding her own path. So, uh, with shades of that, I would say that uh, the thing that I would pull through on this one is just the idea of time. Um, you know, which is so beautifully articulated in Old Man River and that just what, how time passes, how that changes, it truly is an epic because you get to see these people and this culture change so much over the course of these years. And that's what I feel like I always come away with uh, when I see this show is just that idea of just how much happens over the course of a life and over the course of these years.
0: So with that, Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Showboat? We can
3: never go back to before.
1: So I think it's fair to say that both of us were a little bit terrified to talk about Showboat (laughs) because
0: that's an understatement. (laughs) But we also felt it was really important. I mean, it is a it is such a trailblazing piece of musical theater.
1: Yes. Absolutely. And and it's just because it's poised at such a key turning point, there's so much um, before it that informed it. it. There's just a lot of things to talk about around this. So we're going to do our best to not talk for 11 hours about showboat. So it means we're going to skip a lot of stuff too. Again, it's a very, very rich and I will say fascinating thing to dive into. So feel free to consider this just a little poo-poo platter of of things about theater. And so speaking of massive history, my intention originally was to go into what was on stages at this time, if not musical theater as we know it now. Uh, Because now we have what we call a musical, um, it's really not a musical comedy, although that's the term that sometimes is still applied to it. We define that as a book musical with a story. The songs are involved in telling that story. You know, obviously you're listening to this, you know what we're talking about. So when Showboat was on stage in 1927, it really was the first step towards this thing. So the question is then, what were audiences used to seeing before they saw Something like Showboat, where the songs were helping tell the story, where it was dealing with some ser- more serious topics, but also had these songs. Um, and the answer is a lot of things. There are a lot of things that went into the creation of musicals as we know them. They have parents in a lot of different forms. So that obviously is, you know, a PhD in itself. All of these different things. But in brief, the most present thing that's in Showboat is the operetta which was a form that was pretty common at the time. Um, They tended to be set in Europe. They tended to be very emotional. The stories tended to be historical, but also very simple. Um, They weren't real characters. It wasn't usually anything that dealt with contemporary issues, nothing like that. It was usually sort of fantasy, a fairy tale with beautiful tripping music, Um, but nothing deep kind of keeping it surface, um, high drama, but not anything approaching realism. So that is something that certainly was around. And that Hammerstein and Kern both were writing um, with separate people, some variety of these things. Um, there were a lot of them. So we have Operetta. We also have uh, variety shows and reviews. there's a different kind of thing where we have And and these existed in a few different forms. There's like everything from the like the Ziegfeld Follies, which was something where it was uh, those were true reviews where you just had the comedians of the day doing their favorite bits. But you also had dancers who would come out and do numbers and showgirls and, you know, basically this kind of grab bag. There was no overarching story at all. It was just uh, an entertainment uh, that was definitely on the light side. So there's that. Now Edna Ferber. So Edna Ferber is, I mean, God bless this podcast because there are so many times where I go down these rabbit holes of researching these people that I sort of vaguely knew who they were. And then I'm so thrilled to know more about them. And Edna Ferber is definitely one of them. So Edna Ferber was a writer who Um, wrote the book Showboat, upon which the musical was based, and uh, still had a fairly, I mean, she had a big chunk of it and was involved. So she was a Pulitzer Prize winner in 1925 for her novel So Big, and she basically was a writer who was in the Algonquin Circle, so she was a friend and a well-known writer with all these different um, other fabulous writers. She wrote Cimarron and Giant, so actually she wrote a lot of things that were turned into famous films later. She wrote the plays Stage Door and Dinner at Eight with George S. Kaufman, so she was very present on Broadway, too. She was a total badass. It, I really, I, I'm, I'm so ashamed that I didn't know who she was more. But she wrote 13 novels, two autobiographies, numerous short stories, nine plays, many of which were in collaboration with other playwrights, but still counts. And she really, really was focused on stories about strong women, um, specifically strong women who often are uh, involved with beautiful but weak-willed men, which is kind of an interesting theme in her stuff. And in her life, she was a big supporter of women's writing as well. She left her estate to her remaining female relatives. She gave the government permission to spread her literature to encourage female writers. Um, And she was just such a cool, interesting person. So yay Edna Ferber. The story of how she came to write uh, Showboat, the novel, is a great, great origin story. So in August of 1924, she had written a play with uh, called Minnick with George S. Kaufman, and they were doing it in the theater that hadn't been used for a while. So as they did this play, a huge flock of bats that had been nesting in the theaters flew down and all of the theater goers were suddenly surrounded by these flying bats everywhere. And they, they got up and they were running for the exits and everybody was just (laughs) overwhelmed by this insane, like flock of bats that had just happened. And uh, the show's producer, a guy named Winthrop Ames, jokingly remarked next time we won't bother with tryouts. We'll, we'll all charter a showboat and we'll just drift down the rivers, paying, playing the towns as we come to them. And Edna Ferber was like, what are you talking about? What is a showboat? And Winthrop Ames told her about showboats. Um, So Edna Ferber, in a way after my own heart, went down a major, major research rabbit hole after this. She became obsessed with the idea of showboats. And so she started researching them. She was reading everything she could. There was a funny story about how she like went down and she went to get on a showboat. But it was like the end of the season. So basically the people who ran the showboat were like, you can't be on this boat anymore because we're going to, it's the end of the season, but you can come back in April and then you can spend some time with us. And she did that. She spent some time on a showboat. She researched, she got all of these stories from all of these different people. And she ended up taking all that information and writing the novel Showboat. Um, and it originally was serialized in a magazine called Women's Home Companion in 1926 and then published as a book. And it was a sensation. It was just a big hit. It was number one on the bestseller lists for 12 weeks. It was translated into different languages. It just became this, this huge hit. Yeah. So
0: obviously the novel was wildly successful and landed into the hands of Jerome Kern, the very famous composer who had uh, composed a number of smaller musical entertainments at like the princess theater, which was a very uh, now like uh, uh, kind of inching toward what would become the musical uh, in the work that they were doing at this smaller theater space. Um, And he got his hands on a copy of the novel and thought that it was exactly what he had been looking for in terms of source material to take that next step and, make the you know make what we now know as a musical a book musical he really just saw that potential in the novel and so at an opening night for another show he had his friend introduce him to edna ferber uh and edna ferber was like absolutely not you can't no like i'm not you're not gonna take my you know prize novel and turn it into one of these silly like little things that people like you know she didn't uh, she didn't quite understand the concept of what he was going for but i guess through his wit and charm and explanation she was like okay go for it um they paid her like a small little royalty she was going to get like a percent and a half i think of the receipts essentially um the ticket the box office receipts and he takes it to oscar hammerstein who leaps at the chance and oscar hammerstein had been writing a lot of the uh book and lyrics for a lot of these operettas that had been um, that Annika mentioned earlier, that was a, a main form of entertainment at the time. So together, they they t- they then take this massive idea to Florin Ziegfeld, who again Annika mentioned was, was the infamous producer of the Ziegfeld Follies. This you know early twentieth century theater entrepreneur, uh, synonymous, frankly, with Broadway at the time. I mean, he was the supreme ruler of, you know, glorifying the American girl and all those things that uh, Ziegfeld Follies did in the early part of the 20th century. So they start writing all, uh, all these act One songs and all of this and generating this idea and it becomes clear that this is going to be a massive undertaking. So they take it to Ziegfeld who they think is the only producer that could even hope to produce the size and scale and scope of what they're hoping to put together with Show Vote. And, it's important to know that like what they, pre- the idea they presented to Ziegfeld was so far off from what Ziegfeld typically produced. Um, yes, it had big, you know, production quality and elements and certainly was going to have a big score. But, you know, it was not this, it was not the same kind of thing that he would normally do. But he, you know, got the initial uh, sense of what they were doing and wrote to Jerome Kern the next day and said, yes, I want to do this. This is the opportunity of my lifetime. Um, so he clearly um, saw the potential in what they were going for. So with that, they he ends up actually saying that it's going to open his Ziegfeld Theater that is going to be on 54th and 6th Street in New York. Uh, it's going to be the production that opens the Ziegfeld Theater um, and actually ends up not opening the Ziegfeld theater because it wasn't actually ready to be performed by the time the Ziegfeld theater was opening. So he put another show in, uh, and that, you know, opened the Ziegfeld, but then he transferred that other show out of it so that showboat could be in the Ziegfeld. So they put together this massive amount of material and Oscar Hammerstein was really seeking to have everything in the show forward the story and they, and to adapt this massive novel into somehow, uh, theatrical piece. So in adapting this epically long novel, Oscar Hammerstein makes a lot of big adaptation choices um, that are very different from the source material. The novel starts in the 1870s and goes all the way to the present day. They chose to start it in the 1880s. Captain Mandy dies in the novel. Uh, Ravenel doesn't come back in the novel. I mean, there are lots of really um, things that are like core tenets of the book that are just uh, abandoned in the adaptation, all to service, again, it's it's revolutionary at the time, but to service the, the central idea at the center of this story. But it really is a bold adaptation, especially considering Edna Ferber was a little like nervous about what this was going to do anyway. It, it took a lot of chutzpah from the two of them to do what they did.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it was a, a hard thing for Hammerstein because... Uh, there are accounts that said the earliest versions of it were were very slavishly uh, true to the book, but there was like so many details about it, you know, it just wasn't very dramatic. And then when he was kind of allowed himself to take the reins and make it more dramatic, some of the stuff he put in is some of the most effective things in the in the whole show. I mean, the whole the whole thing of Julie. Watching Magnolia sing and choosing to to go away is a Hammerstein creation. That's not what happens in the book at all. But that's it's hard to imagine that show without that moment. It's so uh, devastating, and resonant. You know, so stuff like that. So Hammerstein was really finding his feet as an adapter.
0: I mean, combining characters. You know, uh, I mean, it it goes on, and it really it it's interesting to look at it as a as a parent to what then he does with Oklahoma and other his subsequent other. You know incredibly famous adaptations uh it it in so many ways lays the groundwork for everything that is to come so it ends up at a draft that is about four and a half hours long uh that they try out in washington dc it runs four and a half hours on the first night with no curtain call as we mentioned and the next day before the matinee they cut 50 minutes out of the show they cut an hour out of the show. The next day, which is a like while. I mean, they cut this ballet, they cut this, all these things. And it, as we kind of mentioned, there wasn't an official director of this piece. Hammerstein staged the book scenes and some of the smaller like musical numbers. They had a choreographer to deal with the um, big ballets and dance numbers that were in the show. But that was so peripheral to the actual like maintenance, like the actual creation of the show in the rehearsal process. Mm-hmm. Oscar Hammerstein, for all intents and purposes, was the director. So they cut. 50 minutes out of the show after that first night and then before the next day they cut another 40 minutes so over the course of like a weekend this four and a half hour epic goes it gets an hour and a half cut out of it which is wild so as they're out of town in DC audience reaction is is a lot different from any typical entertainment of the time since there was no curtain call they weren't getting that kind of crazy ovation at the end, and there was a lot of fear from the entire team that people didn't quite get what they were going for. But as they went to Pittsburgh and then Cleveland and Philadelphia, continuing to kind of refine the show and tweak it and and figure out some things, word of mouth started to build. They got a really great review in Variety that went back to New York, and suddenly they go into New York with the biggest advance of any show up to that time. But, of course, it's a massive hit. Uh, it ends up running for... Uh, two years on Broadway at the Ziegfeld, um, and then ends up being revived a couple years later, um, just be, I mean, out of the sheer amount of success. I mean, it ran for over 500 performances, which at the time was an astronomically long run. Now we think of that as like, you know, a standard somewhat successful musical runs about that long, but at the time that was an incredibly long uh, period to run. So after its initial very successful run on Broadway, it's revived only like five years later, I think, again, by Ziegfeld in another massive revival with a lot of the original cast that was, again, hugely successful. It was made into a silent film in 1929, um, which uh, is fascinating in and of itself, and then made into a uh, sound picture in 1936, and then again in a almost more in a color adaptation uh, in 1951 and it was quickly performed all over the all over the country um, in various opera companies and theater companies uh, all over and it's it's a very interesting case too of even early on in its history there was no definitive script of showboat even back to some of these original accounts to some of these original revivals and regional revivals and things there really was no set script because it was just it, it wasn't an operetta where the score was set and done and it wasn't uh something that was being created in a vaudevillian type musical comedy in a way that was all about what the performers you had could do it was it was specific but it wasn't set in stone so there over the course of its history it is kind of just ingrained as a part of it that it doesn't quite have a set version
1: and of course it won zero tony awards Uh, because there were no such thing as the Tony Awards yet, because there were no such thing as musicals yet, because it was the proto first. So, um, Scandal, it did win many Tony Awards later in its various revivals. Um, It is currently the third most revived show on Broadway. Um, So there's lots of ones to talk about. The most notable ones are, I would say in 1994, Hal Prince did a very, very large epic version of it um which was pretty well received Elaine Stritch was in it Rebecca Luker a lot of great people um again some book changes made um every single time it gets changed and of course we can't do this podcast without mentioning the Goodspeed production directed by Rob Ruggiero, which took the very very large show um that originally, as we said, had hundreds of people on stage, et cetera, and put it on our very, very small stage, but did it so beautifully. Uh, I mean, it really was a very, very effective uh, adaptation to make it fit a smaller stage, but all of the story was there. It was great. And also, this show has a very uh, clear other relationship to The Good Speed, which is that the original Magnolia was a star named Norma Terrace, and she lived in Lyme, Connecticut, and then now we have one of our buildings, which is the Norma Terrace Theater. Uh, so thanks to Norma Terrace, who uh, became a star because of Showboat. Uh, Goodspeed has a wonderful home where we do our new musicals. So thanks to Showboat and thanks to Norma Terrace.
0: One of the other things that was really groundbreaking about Showboat at the time, too, was that it had so many songs that turned into popular standards, um, and the whole aspect of selling sheet music to a show and songs from musicals being then taken into the mainstream between make believe can't help love that man of mine, which is absolutely a classic of the American songbook to bill, you are love. And of course, old man river, which is now one of the most famous songs in the American songbook, uh, of course, sung by Joe, one of the black workers on the showboat um, and has, you know, transcended and, you know anything it, i mean it's one of the most famous songs of all time and it's absolutely stunning and gorgeous and perfectly illustrates the themes of showboat and uh really becomes the show's anthem in so many ways so with that annika why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside the two versions of bill what's
3: inside
0: everyone wants to know
3: what's inside
1: Analyzing a song from Showboat is an interesting task because this was before songs carried a lot of plot or character as a rule in what would be known as musical. So many of the songs in Showboat aren't quite analyzable in the way that we would normally dive into a song. For example, when you look at a song like You Are Love, which is a gorgeous, big ballady song it's a pretty standard and generic operetta love song so it really doesn't say anything at all about the two characters who sing it or the moment they sing it in you could kind of plunk it into almost any similar scenario in a different operetta replace it with a different song like that it's just basically two people singing to each other you are beautiful and i love you and that's not really very interesting storytelling wise and then of course there's songs like uh old man river which is very interesting but for a character who doesn't get a lot more depth than that, so it's like they all kind of exist in this on this spectrum of really intense, wonderful songs from characters that we don't necessarily get to know much beyond that in the book, or these kind of very light songs that go into don't go into much depth from characters we know more about. I mean, there's definitely some that I some that I could have chosen to analyze in a sort of more normal way, but I thought I would do something else for this, which is that I'm going to dive into the song Bill which is obviously one of the best known songs from this score, sung by the character of Julie and a song that has a really fascinating history itself, even separate from the rest of the show. So in the early drafts of the show, this song didn't exist. The plot in the second act with Julie followed what the book's plot does with the character. Ravenel has borrowed money from a madam, uh, you know, the madam of a brothel, And Magnolia finds out, goes to the brothel to return the money and realizes while she's there that the madam's shriveled, gaunt, very old looking secretary is Julie. But they never have really a moment. It's just Magnolia pretty much realizing that this is what has happened to this woman that she used to know. However, uh, when Hammerstein and Kern cast the popular cabaret singer, Helen Morgan, as Julie, they decided to change this and build up the role of Julie. So what they did was something that was Hammerstein's invention, which was to make Julie a singer and a drunk, which was actually partly using Helen Morgan's real life and reputation, which is a whole other thing, But and have that amazing moment where she sacrifices her job so that Magnolia can have it. Her final appearance in the show is to do this uh, really selfless thing that presumably will lead to her downfall so that this girl that she loved in a kind of maternal way can can have what she needs, because she recognizes that Magnolia needs this job. Um, So it's an incredibly beautiful moment in the show. It's a moment of incredible sacrifice for this character who has really had such a tragic arc she's gone from being the star of the showboat with her husband um, to being revealed as a mixed race person and thus not hireable by the showboat and then we see her like this where she's clearly fallen far um, become drunk at some point had her husband disappear which is something we'll talk about in a second and she's rehearsing for her show within a show and she sings this song So when Hammerstein first wrote that scene, he wrote that she would sing a quote unquote popular sentimental ballad characteristic of its time, which they do later when Magnolia sings after the ball, which was a popular song of the time. So Hammerstein clearly intended to put a song in there that maybe he wrote, but sounded like a popular song of the day. That was something that Julie would be singing in her nightclub act. However, They didn't do that. Instead, they took a song that Kern had written for another show called Oh Lady Lady, which is a much lighter sort of comedy, musical comedy thing. And they took this song that had been written to be sung by the lead ingenue, the young kind of beautiful girl lead about her love. But it ended up being cut from that show and they tried to put it in different shows, but it didn't work out. So that show obviously was a very different tone because before Showboat, no musical comedy had the tone of Showboat. Um, light comic fun and kern wrote the music but pg wodehouse wrote the lyrics and if you don't know wodehouse he was a writer who wrote arch clever funny character stuff but not emotional he really was not someone we think of as writing anything that that had a lot of emotional depth certainly not i didn't even know he was a lyricist but he was he was a funny writer he was not this so the song was about this girl singing about her boyfriend who's really clearly not a prize as we learn over the course of the song it was kind of a joke song it had its melody that was a little bit melancholy which is part of the reason it was cut from that first show so anyway they took this song for this moment with julie Um, which is kind of remarkable considering how different that is from what Hammerstein had originally imagined for that moment. And it ended up being the perfect song. And although Hammerstein was always uh, insistent that full credit for the lyrics go to Wodehouse, and he was very classy about this. He included a note in the program. He wanted to make sure that he doesn't get any of the credit for the song because people obviously loved the song. It became a big hit in the show. That was actually, he was being maybe overly fair because he made some changes in the lyrics that completely changed the tone of the song. And Kern made a little tiny, tiny tweak in the melody too, but very... um, But Not a lot. And notably, they changed the tempo. They slowed it down quite a bit. So somehow a song that was originally a charming sort of funny song about a girl whose boyfriend is kind of a mess, as we realize over the course of this song, became this devastating song about a woman who has been through everything and is just kind of at the end of this rope very emotional. So what we're going to do is compare these two versions and see how this happened. So to represent the Oh Lady Lady version, which is entirely Wodehouse from the original, we have the glorious goddess of musical theater, Kate Baldwin, singing this version of Bill. And with one note that this version does have all of the correct lyrics. However, the tempo, which is specified to be allegretto, in Oh Lady, Lady is a little bit slower than you would have heard originally. Allegretto is is pretty fast, it's a pretty up-tempo thing. So um, that's the one thing that they haven't quite done here. And then to represent the Hammerstein uh, edited Showboat version, we have Lynette McKee who sang it in the 1994 revival. So let's dive in and we can hear uh, both of these songs. And I'm gonna start with Kate Baldwin and The Wodehouse. So this is the earlier one, the lighter one.
2: used to dream that I would discover the perfect lover someday I knew I'd recognize him if ever he came round my way I always used to fancy that he'd be one of the godlike kind a giant brain and a noble head Like the heroes bold in the books I read And here we have
1: Lynette McKee from the 1994 revival directed by Hal Prince.
3: I used to dream I would discover the perfect lover Someday I knew I'd recognize him If ever he came round my way I always used to fancy then He'd be one of the godlike kind of men with a giant brain and a noble head like the heroes
1: bold in the books
3: i read
1: so as you can hear this is pretty much the same a little bit of a tempo difference and obviously you have two uh, very different vo- vocal qualities here different uh, voice types both wonderful singers um so that's just, that's just about the performer. Um, but we have a setup, right? Um, the same setup. I used to dream that I would find this perfect man who was just like all the storybooks. And here's where we start to get into the tweaks.
2: But along came Bill Who's quite the opposite of all In grace and looks, I know that Apollo Would beat him all hollow And I can't explain It's surely not his brain That makes me thrill I love him Because he's wonderful because his joy is
1: my bill. And here we have the Hammerstein showboat. But a long game
3: Bill who's not the type at all.
1: That there, uh, the changes have been made in the beginning of the chorus, and in the Wodehouse version, there's a badly scanning lyric which uh, which Hammerstein has taken out, which is quite the opposite of all the men. Which is, it's just not a great, it's not hitting the right moments there. But we have the line in storybooks in grace and looks. I know that Apollo would beat him all hollow. So what Hammerstein has taken out there is the first punchline, really. The first verse of this song really sets this up. I used to dream that I would find the perfect man. And then this is the punchline here. Basically, uh, the guy I found was the opposite of that. Um, In storybooks, in Grace and Looks, you'd expect the answer to that to be, he's the image of perfection that I dreamed of. But instead you get this, I know that Apollo would beat him all hollow, which is a funny image because Apollo is just like, beating him he's just like can't even you know he's not even a little bit winning this contest of handsomeness so they've removed this um and they've also removed the uh slangy sounding beat him all hollow right that sounds like what a young person would say in the beginning part of the 20th century those are gone and what Hammerstein has replaced this with is something that sort of means the same thing which is I dreamed of the storybook Prince, but this is not who I'm in love with at all. But what he's done is instead of making it a punchline here, he's softened it and he's made it much more located in reality. He's made it feel much more honest and real. He's saying you wouldn't notice him if you walked him on the, uh, if you passed him on the street, not, you know, hollow, like, oh man, if he was in a contest with Apollo, he would totally lose, which is kind of exaggerated and funny he's just simply saying you could you could meet him on the street and you wouldn't really pay attention to him right which is a little bit funny because it is funny to think of talking to someone that you wouldn't necessarily notice but it's also something that is just softer he's not notable right he's not the worst looking person in the world but he's also not this dream his form and face are not what you would find on a statue so it's a little bit of even though this is a very different uh song and different lyricist my funny valentine it's that same sort of feeling of this isn't really a person that most people would find super beautiful but i find him really lovely so just this little tweak has changed everything and then of course they have the same line about it's surely not his brain which in the first version makes it feel like a pile-on like yet another thing about like well it's definitely not this he's definitely not handsome and he's it's definitely not because he's smart But in the Hammerstein version, because we've gone to this more realistic place, it becomes another example of the singer truly trying to capture this ineffable thing that makes her love him. So already, we're on very different tracks after this uh, beginning that is the same. And then, of course, they both have that beautiful, wistful, melancholy melody on I love him because he's wonderful, because he's just my bill, which is so honest and could go either way, right? It's funny for the young person who's singing. He's after all of these things that he definitely is not smart. He's not handsome. He's not great. He's wonderful. You know, he's just my bill. It's kind of funny again, but if you're not going for that kind of youthful coyness and a little bit, the sort of um, naivety of like, yeah, he's, he's bad at this. He's bad at this. He's bad at this, but he's wonderful, you know, or it could go to that direction of experienced heartbreak you know, just that's sort of open to the world. Like, I, I don't really understand why I feel this way, but I love him. So it's, it's so honest there that it could just go either way.
2: He can't play golf or tennis or polo or sing a solo or row. He isn't half as happy. And I can't explain why he should be just the one, one man in the world
3: for me. He can't play golf or tennis or polo or sing a solo or row. He isn't half as handsome as dozens. Of men (laughs) that I know he isn't tall or straight or slim and he dresses far worse than Ted or Jim and I can't explain why he should be just the one one man in
1: the world. again it's the same because this works either way if it's lighter and funnier this list of things that he can't do are part of the same joke but if we're in the more realistic world these don't feel like a list song it feels like the singer's affection for her man who isn't for everyone the verses are the setup and then the choruses bring it home but by adjusting the chorus you could change the tone of the entire song so let's let's see let's bring it home
2: Trust my bill. he has no gift at all A motor car he cannot steer And it seems clear Whenever he dances, his partner takes chances Oh, I can't explain it's surely not his brain That
1: makes me thrill Verses He's just
3: my Bill An ordinary guy He hasn't got a thing that I about and yet to be upon his knee so comfy and roomy seems natural to me and I can't explain it's surely not his brain that may
1: so Wodehouse again has loaded the chorus with the jokes he has no gifts at all versus Hammerstein's an ordinary boy and then Wodehouse has the two jokes about a motor car which of course would have to be cut because this is set before there were motor cars and the very charming line about when he dances his partner takes chances um which you you want to when you're building a joke song like this you want to save something like that uh which is kind of the funniest line in the- towards the ending there but these are all light and funny and in the same spirit right he's bad at this he's bad at that he's really bad at that when he dances uh, his partner takes chances right a little bit like later boy can that boy foxtrot right there's some similar jokes in there but Hammerstein isn't interested in making the whole song about how comedically awful Bill is. He, His Julie knows Bill isn't special, but also feels deeply at home with him, which changes the whole thesis of the song. The Wodehouse version puts its comedy in the contrast. The more she describes him, the worse he sounds, and the funnier it is that she's so gaga for him when the only good thing she can think to say about him is that she loves him because he's just him. But the Hammerstein version changes it to a woman who knows her man is flawed but loves him despite that. This is a guy that not everyone could see the value in, but she does and she loves him. And there's something so true and so real about that. It doesn't really matter after all if the person you love is someone that the world sees as special as long as you see that. And this is what she's saying. She just can't not love him. And so the choruses of each version locate us, but Hammerstein is dropping an anchor in an emotional reality. Bill is not the most impressive guy to brag about, but being with him feels like home and she loves him, even though maybe she wishes she didn't. It just changes the entire tenor of the song from something young and inexperienced to something older and much more weathered and wise and having been through it, which of course where Ju- is where Julie is at the time. So that allows for the endings, which are true to each version. Let's listen.
2: I love him because he's I don't know because he's just my
1: That, I don't know, is such a sweet, young, you know, she's just not the most articulate kid here, this singer. She's in love with this guy who sounds like a total mess. But let's listen to the Hammerstein, who turns it into something devastating.
3: I love him because he's... I don't know. Because he's just my
1: bill. So that feels very different. That feels like a woman who knows many things, has experienced many things, and still has no answer for why She is in love with this guy, but she does. And obviously this is a gift to the performer because we have two very, very talented performers here who have gone in very different directions with it, right? This is the exact same line here, but with a very different inflection, very different feeling, very different meaning in it. Uh, And that's really good lyric writing. I mean, it's funny because this is the Woodhouse original, but keeping it that simple, keeping it that pure gives you space for these performers. So very, very different. And one of the things that's important to note when we're talking about the song is that we're talking about a song that is sung by Julie the singer. And this is now we're talking about Showboat. We're gonna stop talking about Oh Lady, Lady. So technically, this song is not necessarily about Julie's life. After all, her husband is Steve, which we know from Act One, not Bill. Bill is not a name of a person that exists within the showboat realm at all. And we don't know what happened with Steve at all. The last time we saw him, he was drinking a drop of her blood so that he could stand by her. He seemed like he was going to go off and be with her no matter what happened. And now we have several years later met her again. She's a drunk. She's a singer in this club. And she's singing this song. So Hammerstein and Kern have brilliantly blurred the lines between the realities here we very much interpret this song as coming from Julie, the character, singing about a husband who has abandoned her. And I think Hammerstein did a very interesting and smart thing here by adding into the book in the earlier act, the fact that Steve is a bad actor, which somehow prepares us to hear the list of his failings in this song as about Steve because even at his best, when he was being a noble and upright supportive husband to Julie, he wasn't a magical heartthrob, right? He had some flaws, which we knew about then. So we, we're we already kind of mentally prepped to take this song as about him, even if it's never confirmed that it is. And it would make sense that it was not because obviously she's singing a song, diegetic, etc. So the yearning and the sadness in this melody, which feels a little odd for the old lady lady setting of a girl in love with a mess of a boy, feels heavier and much writer here especially when it's slowed down a bit um which obviously would have been a little speedier earlier and the jokier lines in the song fit because she's singing a performative diegetic song not to mention that it makes the gut punch of those emotional moments especially the final i don't know just land so brilliantly and so devastatingly so it's so interesting to look at the song and compare it, because I think it's a surprise to many people. When you think of this song, you think of this top level torch song that is a beautiful character number, um, sung perfectly by this character. And when you actually think about it, it's not a perfect torch song because it's it's as we said it's it's half of this comedy song but it's been brilliantly tweaked to be a torch song it's not actually necessarily about the life of this character um but our brain does the work there and it's so fascinating that it was not written for this moment because it is hard to imagine a more perfect song for this moment in this show
0: and that will bring us to how do you solve a problem like maria
3: how do you solve a problem like maria
0: where we talk about some of the issues, both internal and external, that the show faces. So the first thing I'd like to talk about in this section is, we kind of alluded to earlier, which is like, should we be thinking of Showboat as actually the first integrated musical? That is a moniker that is most frequently attributed to Oklahoma for its integration of song story and dance all into one cohesive moving the story forward piece um but i also think that showboat does that a a lot i I, you know i the classic example in oklahoma is the inclusion of the dream of laurie's dream ballet as the um like uncuttable you can't extract it from the story ballet but there are certainly performance elements and dance elements to showboat that continue to move the story forward and uh it's not like they're isn't dance in it. So I, so I guess the question is, is showboat like parent to the modern book musical ancestor to the modern musical, or, and I can say this because I am one, the underappreciated redheaded stepchild of, you know, the modern musical, where does it kind of, where does it stand in that? And do you think that that is, you know, where do you fall in that debate?
1: Well, I think it's a, it's a question of first, Versus complete, you know. I think Oklahoma is the first example of the complete form of a book musical, the kind of ideal that we look to because it is one thing. All of it is one thing. All of the storytelling is serving itself. All of the pieces are serving the storytelling. There's no fat to be trimmed. There's no vestigial pieces from other forms that are in Oklahoma. So I think Oklahoma rightfully gets the title of the first book musical as we know it because it is such a template on which others were set. Showboat is certainly the first thing that is the musical theater form in its kind of proto form but it has so many elements from different things still you know it's it's not a complete musical especially when you think about how different it was when it first came on the scene and how much it still had of those elements you know it had a lot of the elements of var- of a variety show it had a lot of elements of operetta Al- there were popular songs of the day that were just in the show and still are after the ball is is a show is a song that is not written by Kern and Hammerstein, Um, Goodbye, My Lady Love is another one. Like that's, there are all these kind of pieces that are not what we would call a musical right now. So um, I think it is certainly groundbreaking, certainly foundational and certainly extremely important, especially when you consider just how many things are in it and just how much there is to talk about around it. But I definitely would kind of give the, the complete title to, oklahoma which really is the show that perfected the form i think it's also
0: too important to draw the distinction between because there are other shows that happen between showboat and i mean there's a a 15 year difference 16 year difference almost um between i guess for 27 to 43 but it's like the end of 27 so but anyway regardless there's like a 15 year gestation between showboat and oklahoma and in that 15 year period there are many musicals that that pop up that we still absolutely perform and have been adapted and changed but like anything goes happens in that period uh you know uh that's the most obvious one i think um but babes in arms happens in that period uh roger i mean there's a lot of connect there's a lot of things that continue to make steps in the direction of getting to oklahoma but i think the important distinction to draw between all of those shows and oklahoma and also showboat from all of those shows and why those shows don't get as much credit as showboat does or as oklahoma does is that ultimately all of those shows were still it wasn't like oh we're setting out to tell this story and to tell this story we are going to do this 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 and this it was like oh we have all this talent and all these people And we're going to create this little flimsy story that will get us through this almost as like a Band-Aid taped up kind of version of Showboat and or Oklahoma where the story of Oklahoma and the story of Showboat were entirely what drove all of the choices as opposed to retrofitting something into a story. I think in a lot of ways, and this is not to knock jukebox musicals but in a lot of ways jukebox musicals are like our modern version of that 15 year period thing where we're taking something that already exists kind of and putting it into a form now these these shows still had original scores that were fit to the various performers that were in them and their various abilities and whatever but it really was just a very loose kind of branch on which to hang things am i correct in that uh analysis Annika?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there are certainly um, ones that were closer to what we consider a, a musical as we know it, and ones that are further away from it. But yeah, there were definitely, there was definitely something different about Oklahoma coming down the pike. Um, it was just so much more unified than than any of the previous shows. And, and a lot of those shows are super interesting shows. But yeah, they're not quite, the story is just not all one piece in the way that you you see with something later
0: so obviously with showboat the one of the major things to discuss and uh deal with with any production of it or and even its existence in general is um how it deals with uh racism and race relations in america which is absolutely central to what the show is examining and uh, talking about and exploring so it's without doubt that Throughout Oscar Hammerstein's life, he was very interested in ending racial intolerance and uh, advocating for people who were of different uh, ethnic and racial backgrounds being treated as equal, um, as equal citizens um, to white people. Uh, but with time and with um, the, some of the stereotypes and conventions of the early 20th century theater, um, I think a lot of those intentions end up getting lost in the piece or have are, are quickly uh, quickly lost or forgotten about the piece in subsequent productions that have not dealt with this question in a sensitive manner. So I guess the question is, is Showboat a musical that looks and examines and asks tough racial, race relation questions, or is Showboat a racist, piece and I know that that it seems like almost a false argument to set up but I do think that 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 is the span of the question and debate surrounding showboat is is that wide is is it worth continuing to perform or does it need to be put into the box of history and we need to do better and do other things
1: well I think to that basic question of whether it is a show that has a lot of questions about race and racial equality on its mind, um, or whether it is a show that is racist and problematic, uh, my answer is yes to both. It's a very fascinating and interesting show to look at in terms of its history, um, because there is so much about it on pretty much every level that is complicated here. I mean, when I was looking into the research on this, it just, it breaks your brain. I mean, you have, you have the first racially integrated cast on Broadway. You have a Black performer singing Old Man River, which is an extraordinary song, um, full of wisdom and intelligence and a lot of things that characters... Black characters, full stop, but also Black characters played by Black people were not given at the time. That is amazing. Uh, the The fact that the show opens with Black people talking about how much they have to work while white people don't have to do that work is, a, is an extraordinary statement. At the same time, even while there was a Black performer singing Old Man River, his wife was played by an Italian-American woman who uh, was in blackface because her popular character was Aunt Jemima. So you have this, this dichotomy of these incredibly racist moments, like there's nothing more racist than having a blackface woman playing the stereotypical mammy character, playing Queenie, married to a character that is a black man singing Old Man River. It's so complicated on so many levels, and I think, and I'm going to give a credit to uh, Warren Hoffman right here, who wrote a book called The Great White Way, uh, Race and the Broadway Musical, who has written a truly extraordinary piece about Showboat that I really uh, recommend that everybody who is listening to this uh, get this book and read this piece because he dives into so many really interesting questions around the show and some of the criticisms that are leveled at the at it, namely, and most specifically the idea that Queenie and Joe are these kind of stereotypical characters, with, to which he makes the point that the white characters are also largely in the melodramatic cliche vein as well, so you can't quite remove the black characters and look at them as having no characterization, um, without also doing that to the white characters. Although certainly the white characters get more development than the two black characters do. But he also brings up the fascinating point that, uh, the show is all about performance in a real way on a lot of different levels. And one of the things that is performed in this show is race, um, which you see with Julie and, um, who is obviously passing as a white woman, even though her mother is black. In that scene with Steve, where he drinks a little bit of your blood, of her blood, it kind of highlights how absurd that notion is that one drop of blood makes you not white anymore. And then you have Magnolia, who becomes a star because she can sing these songs that black people sing. And she sings them like them and becomes very popular that way. That was actually one of the weirdest details when I was reading the script again. Like, this is so strange to have this moment where it's like, now that is a moment that you could not have at all. So so there's, there's a lot of different levels. I, I don't think it is totally fair to ever look at a piece with the eyes of a 2020 person and say, you know, straight to the dustbin, especially when you have something like this, whereas it, it, which is just so dense with stuff. I certainly think that there are a lot of versions of the show and a lot of smart directors who have done it and approached it in a way that address and correct some of these things. I think you just have to approach it fully engaging with what is both good about the story and the points that the story is making and elements like starting the show itself with the chorus that it starts with and the stuff that is is problematic now and seeing how you can not band-aid it, not skirt around it, but but see if there's a way that you can aid in the storytelling of the intention that is there in so much of it, which is to make the point about how the white characters can live whatever kind of lives they want to while these black characters are limited to these very specific roles and then you're you you have a very interesting piece and you have a piece that i think is is entirely relevant today yeah and actually can speak to some of what's going on i i don't i don't i don't think it should never be performed again certainly what do you think
0: I mean, it's really it's it's difficult to have these conversations because there there's a lot of um, parallel I think between this conversation with Showboat and the conversation that uh, surrounds the uh, surrounds Gone with the Wind, as yeah. this similar American epic that looks back to a different time, uh, but in a time that had allegedly made progress, but have we really made progress? And 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 that I think is a different conver- I think Gone with the Wind is a separate conversation. I don't think. I don't think dealing with racism is at the center of gone with the wind unfortunate uh, you know unfortunate to gone with the wind whereas it is central i think to showboat and it's central to what it's exploring i mean just the fact that old man river exists and particularly in subsequent productions it has been it has continued to be an undercurrent musically within the show Hal prince does a marvelous job of that in the 1994 revival and that has continued to be um, something, you know, this metaphor of the river continuing as uh, not seeming to care as life for Black people doesn't change and get better and racial justice has not arrived.
1: Yeah, and certainly, I mean, we we should mention Paul Robeson and what he did with that song, which was really take it um, as a political anthem um, and put a lot more meaning in it uh, that reflected the civil rights movement and a lot of the struggle towards racial equality on a lot of different levels. So you can't do something like that with a song that doesn't have depth already. So just, and also Paul Robeson is amazing. I just want to say that.
3: Well,
0: I mean, and it's worth, it's, it's worth bringing up and noting that he continued to change the lyrics at, throughout his life to suit what he thought was appropriate to the moment. I mean, there are lots of examples of of that but the most the most obvious is the changing of get a little drunk and you land in jail to show a little grit and you land in jail which while it might seem so minor and something you don't think about but there's a huge difference in though in those two things and certainly uh apply to certain moments in history with uh, an immense authenticity and urgency and 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 speaking to particular moments in time but you know, this idea that Old Min River is is a metaphor for racial inequity in America, and yet this showboat floats on top of it as, as this different kind of thing that is run and engined by, you know, people of color, and uh, as they continue to live lives that are unequal to their white counterparts, you know, it, it goes down to this question on some level of, like, showboat is intended for a white audience, ultimately, right? I don't think it's necessarily intended... For I mean, and there's an interesting discussion around this when it came to the Major helper and survival. There were tons of protests surrounding the show in Toronto, and M. Norby's Philip, who is an essayist, a writer, um, and activist, uh, wrote a a long essay that has been published as a like book pamphlet um, called "Showing Grit," that really uh, systematically took apart continuing to produce Showboat, and part of her point is that Showboat is ultimately intended. For white audiences and using black people as ethnic flavor, you know, letting white people, I'm going to quote her, um, quote, so that they, the white audiences need not concern themselves with the real and root causes of injustice and is black's face. Um, And for her, showboat is an end quote. Showboat is intended to make whites feel good about themselves. Those who are all lulled by this must bear some responsibility for the outcome of this disastrous exercise in insensitivity and racism, because the wave of change, the heartfelt and deep urge to live lives of dignity will not die. Essentially, this idea that continuing to show these stereotypes um, ultimately allows them to be perpetuated as we haven't, we still haven't grown beyond these stereotypes in our depiction of Black people, which uh, is something certainly that we're having a cultural conversation about right now, as we continue to evolve in the stories we tell and the way we depict characters and um, diversity and racial attitudes in in art. But ultimately, for me, describing racism and this is a quote from someone, um, but that like describing racism doesn't make it racist um and uh you know i i guess part of the other question then for me is how much do we as storytellers bear the responsibility for how people intake our work um and or intake the work that is on stage in front of them if people choose to not investigate the race like their inner race or their inner racism or their inner um biases after watching showboat How much do we bear the responsibility for that for the perpetuating of negative imagery surrounding minorities versus attempting to have an a real authentic wholehearted investigation of the racism that that is a part of the fabric of our country and our society i I, i'm not sure where the answer is on that i don't know that anyone knows the answer to it but um that's what i think about continually
1: yeah i mean that's that's a really good point and i mean we should also say that you know we are two white people who uh, are talking about a show that was created entirely by white people um at a time when actually there were some black people creating musicals but um really not many and still not that many, unfortunately, which is a a huge problem with this industry. But so we we must say that too, which is that there's, you know, you can have all sorts of intellectual arguments, but ultimately this isn't the story of Black people as told by Black people. Um, And that is problematic. Right. And
0: something you have to contend with if you're doing this show. And that means it's time for our favorite things.
2: These are a few of my favorite things.
0: Where we talk about some of our favorite things about Showboat. So, Annika, who would be your favorite character in Showboat?
1: I, I really love Ellie and Frank. I just find them so much fun to be with in a show that doesn't have a lot of fun characters necessarily. Um, and Ellie specifically, I just, I, I just always am happy when they come on stage. So, I'm going to say Ellie and Frank, but Ellie specifically.
0: I think that's great. I found them a lot more entertaining this time around than I think I have remembered in my mind, so I totally get that. I think for me, I mean, I I think I I think my favorite character has to be Julie, although part of me wants to say Captain Andy because I do love his like never quite down, you know, ain't down yet type spirit that he has, but I think I mean the dramatic moments that Julie gets I think are so poignant and wonderful and uh such an interesting character that is that doesn't have a ton of like you know siblings or characters in in the musical theater canon that have a similar kind of story like that so i just i think she's a very interesting fascinating character
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: what about your favorite song what's your favorite song in showboat
1: um you know, it's funny because when I was thinking about this, I was like, well, it would be very on brand if I said Misery's coming around because I always love like the darkest. And I have to say, I really do love Misery's coming around, but I'm not gonna pick that one. Um, I'm gonna pick the opposite of Misery's Coming Around. I'm gonna pick um, I might fall back on you, which is such a like feather light little song. And I just there's something about that melody that is just so charming and I really love it. And I just it's my fave.
0: I love that. That's great. I mean, the score is so wide and varied that, like, it almost could go, you could go anywhere. Like, there were other songs that, on the reread, I was like, oh, that's actually a really delightful, lovely song. Like, why don't I think about that song more often? Um, But I, as much as that, part of me, first off, I love Bill. I love the song Bill. I think it's really amazing and poignant. I also really love Can't Help loving That Man of Mine. I mean, I know, it's just such a joyous, like, moment i almost kind of hate that it comes so soon in the show or feels so soon just because it feels like it should be like more momentous than that but also all that is to say there is no way that i can't say that old man river is my favorite song it i love listening to it it's so powerful and so moving and uh i also just like i love a good bass anthem and there aren't a lot of them so I, i i have to pick old man river
1: yeah I mean, it's it's really unique. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous song.
0: So what would be your favorite miscellaneous thing about Showboat?
1: I'll, I'll throw it to something that I, that I found out when I was reading about it, which was that in the original production, when you went to see it, you were given a, a handout, which was the playbill for The Parsons Bride, which was the show that they do on the Showboat. Which kind of blew my mind because that's the kind of thing that, you know, you you'd see now a sort of like it's a, it's a theatrical trick that I would have considered a lot more contemporary, um, and I just really love that they went for this meta theatrical realism. I, I just I love that detail. I think that would be so exciting. But yeah, that is a detail that I love. So I'm picking that.
0: That's so interesting. I didn't catch that in in my re- in doing research. I didn't catch that, but that. That's such a fascinating, oh, look at that. She's showing me on the, since podcasts are a visual medium, um, you too can see what Annika is showing me through Zoom. Um,
1: Miles Kruger's book, Showboat, the Story of a Classic American Musical, by the way. uh,
0: But I, so I didn't, I didn't catch that in looking over the research, but it's such an interesting thing. I think my miscellaneous thing that I also discovered in this research was that um, Cotton Blossom which is the kind of opening number um, theme for the show boat, which is called the Cotton Blossom. Uh, And Old Man River are the same tune, but Old Man River is inverted. So Cotton Blossom becomes Old Man River, which is just an inversion of the same musical, like notes, intervals, things. And it was all done with the intention that while there was this joyous kind of celebration happening, among the white people on this showboat the black people would, were dealing with the inversion of that um in the fact that they weren't they weren't being treated equally and fairly and that injustice continued for them just as the river does i just think that's a fascinating it's so central musically to how the show is built and thematically in music but it also matches the theme that they were going for in the book so well and was done with such intention i just think it's absolutely breathtaking once you hear it it's like you can't unhear it on a certain level at least for me so that that takes the cake for me on this one
1: i love that so much i did not know that and i love it so
0: much and that will bring us to one of our final segments corner of the sky
3: gotta find my corner of the sky
0: where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. So uh, this segment feels redundant after the entire episode that we've done, because we've talked about how it is the, you know, parent uh, prototype for the modern American book musical, which is obviously part of its corner of the sky. Monica, I mean, do you think there's anything we've missed or even in that, you know, what else would you add to that sentence?
1: (laughs) I mean, we could talk a lot more about innovations and how it, it really set the stage for all musicals to come, but, I would say it's, it's not so much a corner of the sky. It's, it opened the gates of heaven.
3: It,
0: it is the four walls in which we find corners. <laughs> in some ways. In some ways. Maybe it's the foundation that then Oklahoma puts up the walls. Maybe that's what yeah. we could say.
1: <laughs> the barn raising that, you know, Oklahoma completes.
0: Well, that wraps it up for our deep dive into Showboat. And in fact, season one of In the Spotlight if we can believe it, 19 episodes later, we have done a season of the show, which is insane.
1: Yeah. Dang.
0: What comes next? So we don't even have a, what comes next for you. I mean, the what comes next is we can't wait to hear from you for your reactions on season one. Please remember to follow us on social media at, at in the spot pod. And you can email us any questions Comments, concerns, thoughts, prayers uh, at podcast at goodspeed.org. And maybe we'll do a surprise mailbag episode at some point. Um, But, you know, I I guess the what comes next, we don't have any trivia clues for you, but uh, definitely expect another season of In the Spotlight, where we'll dive into a whole different set of classic musicals and uh, probably with some new segments and some new, fancy, you know, upgrades. I don't know. I don't know what else, what else comes next, Annika?
1: Well, I don't know. It's a, it's a wondrous new world, but I will say too, uh, let us know the shows that you would like to see in the next season, because obviously uh there are hundreds of really great shows and we have had a blast diving into ones that we know and love and ones we didn't know so well and ones we didn't love so much. So, um, let us know what's on your wish list and uh, maybe we'll, uh, we'll uh, add them to ours.
0: So until then, we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone.
1: Bye, everyone.
0: This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Bury Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmony Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit Goodspeed.org. See you next time.